How many of you dreamers believe in ghosts? Have you visited a place that's been purported to have been haunted? Have you seen an apparition, or at least you think you have? Do you believe? I'm forever a skeptic. I've been to places that are supposedly haunted. I've had dreams that I've been jolted awake thinking something otherworldly caused me to wake up, but I snap out of it. I watch TV shows about haunted places. I've read stories and I've seen pictures of mysterious images appearing in photographs. Spirits of the dead haunting the places their lives ended. My mom thinks she's being haunted by the ghost of my dad, but I remain cynical about it all. I do find it absolutely fascinating, however. The stories and all the history that accompany a good ghost tale. Recent surveys have indicated that a large portion of us believes in ghosts. A staggering 43% of us in the United States believe. In the United Kingdom, the numbers are even larger, 52%, more than half. In much of Asia, the belief in ghosts is even more widespread than the rest of the world, where ghosts are characterized as neutral entities and may be appeased through rituals or angered if provoked. Ghosts in Asia can be asked for help in healing humans, winning the lottery, and protecting one while traveling or while pregnant. As with some American ghosts, they have an attachment to the human realm, which keeps them haunting and wanting to help. So this would explain my mom, who is Vietnamese, and her ongoing assertions that when she has a vision of my dad, and it happens to be raining when he comes a-haunting, that she needs to go to the casino because this is a sign of good luck. I bet you can see me rolling my eyes every time she tells me this. The paranormal tourism industry is enormous, but it's hard to determine which sites are actually supposedly haunted and which ones are dramatically staged haunted places. Some locales pride themselves on their haunted heritage. There might be one that's local to you. One that comes to mind that's close to me is the Queen Mary. We've also discussed a couple mini episodes back, Alcatraz, supposedly haunted by ghosts of inmates who died while in prison there. Have you actually ever looked up the definition of ghost? I found it defined as a disembodied soul, the soul of a dead person, a disembodied spirit imagined, usually as a vague, shadowy, or evanescent form, as wandering among or haunting living persons, the soul of a dead person believed to be an inhabitant of the unseen world, or to appear to the living in bodily likeness, something like that. Those are the types of words that keep me skeptical. Unseen world, soul of the dead, vague, shadowy, evanescent, disembodied. I'm a gotta see it to believe it kind of a person. And as long as ghosts are vague and shadowy existing in an unseen world, I'm not likely going to change my views. But. I'm still going to have to give my mom a ride to the casino every time she has a, quote, vision, unquote. Well, as it turns out, my mom isn't the only one reportedly having personally experienced paranormal activity. Studies have shown that approximately 28% of those surveyed 
reported having some kind of paranormal experience, and 20% of respondents reported having seen a ghost sometime in their life. But you have to believe in ghosts or be told that a place is haunted before you're going to interpret certain events as being paranormal. Studies have found that if some people are told a place is haunted and others are told the same place isn't haunted, those who were told that the place was haunted report higher numbers of unusual experiences. Another study showed that when people hear or read about paranormal narratives, especially if the story comes from a credible source, or at least what they perceive as a credible source, it was enough to increase paranormal beliefs among participants. So basically what we have is people trying to make sense of something that seems inexplicable. If you hear a noise or see a visual effect that has a normal explanation, but you misinterpret it, then you might categorize it as paranormal. People tend to assume that if they can't explain something, then that's the go-to explanation. I'm going to tell you a tale today of a woman who believed. Following the death of her husband, she spent the rest of her life believing. And today, I will tell you the tale of how she was consumed with appeasing the spirits of the dead until her own death. In today's mini episode of California Dreaming, the tale of the forever house. Oliver Winchester was born November 30th, 1810 in Boston, Massachusetts to parents Samuel Winchester and Hannah Bates. He was a politician and a businessman known for the manufacturing and marketing of the Winchester repeating rifle a redesigned descendant of the volcanic rifle from some years earlier. Winchester had started as a clothing manufacturer in New York City and in New Haven, Connecticut. It was during this time he found out that a division of Smith & Wesson was failing financially with one of their newly patented firearms. Always on the lookout for a new opportunity, Winchester got together some venture capital with other stockholders and acquired the Smith & Wesson division that was failing in 1850. Within seven years, Winchester was able to position himself as the principal stockholder of the company, and he relocated the production to New Haven, changing the name to New Haven Arms Company. Initially, returns were slow, due largely in part to the design and poor performance of the volcanic cartridge, a hollow, conical ball filled with black powder sealed with a cork primer. Although the Volcanics repeater design far outpaced the rival technology, the poor performance and reliability of the 25 and 32 caliber cartridges used in the pistol and rifle models was little match for the competitors' larger caliber weapons. Luckily for Oliver Winchester, he inherited a brilliant engineer, Benjamin Tyler Henry who proved himself to be an incredibly valuable asset. Henry looked to improving upon the volcanic repeating rifle by enlarging the frame and magazine to accommodate 17 of his newly redesigned all brass cased 44 caliber rimfire cartridges. This new cartridge put the Winchester company on the map and Henry's ingenuity and skills were rewarded with a patent in his name on October 16, 1860 for what became known as the Henry Rifle. This rifle continued to be manufactured for almost six years, with the total production of approximately 12,000 rifles, both in iron and brass frames. 
Following the success of the Henry Rifle, the company reorganized once more and was renamed the Winchester Repeating Arms Company. In 1866, an employee named Nelson King improved upon the patent and fixed the flaws in the Henry Rifle by incorporating a loading gate on the side of the frame and integrating a round sealed magazine which was covered by a forestock. This would be the first Winchester rifle, model 1866, the Yellow Boy. Oliver Winchester would go on to become quite active in politics, serving as New Haven City Commissioner in 1864 and Lieutenant Governor of Connecticut from 1866 to 1867. Money was pouring in and Oliver Winchester soon amassed a large fortune from government contracts and private sales. The family prospered at the height of the Civil War. Oliver would go on to have three children, and his only son and heir to the Winchester fortune was William Wirt Winchester. On September 30, 1862, William would marry Sarah Lockwood Party in an elaborate ceremony in New Haven. Oliver Winchester died on December 11, 1880 of tuberculosis. His ownership in the Winchester Repeating Arms Company was passed on to his only son, William. However, William would also die three months later in March of 1881, also of tuberculosis, and ownership was passed on to his wife, Sarah. Sarah Lockwood Party was born around 1840. Her exact date of birth is a mystery. She married William Winchester on September 30, 1862. Four years later, on July 15, 1866, Sarah gave birth to a daughter named Annie Party Winchester. Just a short time later, the first disaster struck for Sarah as her daughter contracted an illness known as marasmus, a children's disease in which the body wastes away. The infant died on July 24th, a month after she was born. Sarah was so shattered by this event that she withdrew herself and teetered on the edge of madness for some time. In the end, it would be nearly a decade before she returned to her normal self but she and William would never have another child. Not long after Sarah returned to her family and home, another tragedy struck. William, now heir to the Winchester Empire, was struck down with pulmonary tuberculosis. He died on March 7, 1881. As a result of his death, Sarah inherited over $20 million an incredible sum, especially in those days. She also received 48.9% of the Winchester Repeating Arms Company and an income of about $1,000 per day, which was not going to be taxable until 1913. But her newfound wealth could not do anything to ease her pain. Sarah grieved deeply, not only for her husband, but also for her lost child. A short time later, a friend suggested that Sarah might speak to a spiritualist medium about her loss. Your husband is here, the medium told her, and then went on to provide a description of William Winchester. 
He says for me to tell you that there is a curse on your family which took the life of he and your child. It will soon take you too. It is a curse that has resulted from the terrible weapon created by the Winchester family. Thousands of persons have died because of it and their spirits are now seeking vengeance. Sarah was then told she must sell her property in New Haven and head towards the setting sun. She would be guided by her husband and when she found her new home in the West, she would recognize it. You must start a new life, the medium said, and build a home for yourself and for the spirits who have fallen from this terrible weapon too. You can never stop building the house. If you continue building, you will live, stop, and you will die. In 1884, Sarah moved to California and purchased a farmhouse. The house stood on 161 acres of land in what is now San Jose, California. And if you are unfamiliar with the city of San Jose, it is located in the center of the Santa Clara Valley on the southern shore of the San Francisco Bay. It is the economic, cultural, and political center of the Silicon Valley and the largest city in Northern California. With a population well over 1 million residents, it is the third most populous city in California after Los Angeles and San Diego and the 10th most populous city in the United States. Immediately after moving there and purchasing the property, Sarah began spending her $20 million inheritance by renovating and adding more rooms to the house with work continuing 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year for the next 38 years. As the house grew to include 26 rooms, railroad cars were switched onto a nearby line to bring building materials and imported furnishings to the house. The house was rapidly growing and expanding, and while Sarah claimed to have no master plan for the structure, she met each morning with her foreman, and they would go over with her hand-sketched plans for the day's work. The plans were often chaotic, but it showed a real flair for building. Sometimes, though, they would not work out the right way, but Sarah always had a quick solution. If this happened, they would just build another room around an existing one. As the days, weeks, and months passed, the house continued to grow. Rooms continued to be added, and then they turned into entire wings. Doors were joined to windows, levels turned into towers and peaks, and the place eventually grew to a height of seven stories. Inside of the house, three elevators were installed, as were 47 fireplaces. There were countless staircases which led to nowhere, a blind chimney that stopped short of the ceiling, closets that opened to blank walls, trapped doors, double-backed hallways, skylights that were located one above another above another, doors that opened to steep drops to the lawn below, and dozens of other oddities. Even all of the stair posts were installed upside down and many of the bathrooms had glass doors on them. It was also obvious that Sarah was intrigued by the number 13. 
Nearly all of the windows contained 13 panes of glass. The walls had 13 panels. The greenhouse had 13 domes. Many of the wooden floors contained 13 sections. Some of the rooms had 13 windows, and every staircase but one had 13 steps. This exception was unique in its own right. It is a winding staircase with 42 steps, which would normally be enough to take the climber up three stories. In this case, however, the steps only rise nine feet because each step is only two inches high. The house continued to grow, and by 1906, it had reached a towering seven stories tall. Sarah continued her occupancy and expansion of the house, living in melancholy solitude with no one other than her servants, the workmen, and of course, the spirits. It's been said that on sleepless nights, when she was not communing with the spirit world about the designs for the house, Sarah would play her grand piano into the early hours of the morning. According to legend, the piano would be admired by passers-by on the street outside, despite the fact that two of the keys were badly out of tune. The most tragic event occurred within the house when the great San Francisco earthquake of 1906 struck. When it was all over, portions of the Winchester mansion were nearly in ruins. The top three floors of the house had collapsed into the gardens and would never be rebuilt. In addition, the fireplace that was located in the Daisy Room, the room where Mrs. Winchester was sleeping on the night of the earthquake, collapsed, shifting the room and trapping Sarah inside. She became convinced that the earthquake had been a sign from the spirits who were furious that she had nearly completed the house. In order to ensure that the house would never be finished, she decided to board up the front 30 rooms of the mansion so that construction would not be completed, and also so that the spirits who fell when the portion of the house collapsed would be trapped inside forever. For the next several months, the workmen toiled to repair the damage done by the earthquake. Although actually the mammoth structure had fared far better than most of the buildings in the area, only a few of the rooms had been badly harmed, although it had lost the highest floors and several domes and towers had toppled over. The expansion on the house began once more. The number of bedrooms increased from 15 to 20 and then to 25. Chimneys were installed all over the place, although strangely, they served no purpose. Some believe that perhaps they were added because it's been said that ghosts like to appear and disappear through them. On a related note, it's also been documented that only two mirrors were ever installed in the house. Sarah believed that ghosts were afraid of their own reflection. On September 4th, 1922, after a conference session with the spirits in the seance room, Sarah went to her bedroom for the night. At some point in the early morning hours, she died in her sleep at the age of 83. She left all of her possessions to her niece, Frances Marriott, who had been handling most of Sarah's business affairs for some time. Little did anyone know, but by this time, Sarah's large bank account had dwindled considerably. 
Rumor had it that somewhere in the house was hidden a safe containing a fortune in jewelry and solid gold dinner service with which Sarah had entertained her ghostly guests. Her relatives forced open a number of safes, but only found old fishing lines, socks, newspaper clippings about her daughter's and her husband's deaths, a lock of baby hair, and a suit of woolen underwear. No solid gold dinner service was ever discovered. The furnishings, personal belongings, and surplus construction and decorative materials were removed from the house and the structure itself was sold to a group of investors who planned to use it as a tourist attraction. One of the first to see the place when it opened to the public was Robert L. Ripley, who featured the house in his popular column, Believe It or Not. The house was initially advertised as being 148 rooms, but so confusing was the floor plan that every time a room count was taken, a different total came up. The place was so puzzling that it was said that the workmen took more than six weeks just to get furniture in and out of it. The moving man became so lost because it was basically a labyrinth. It was a house where downstairs leads to neither the cellar nor upstairs to the roof. The rooms of the house were counted over and over again and five years later, it was estimated that 160 rooms existed, although no one is really sure if that's even correct. Today, the house has been declared a California historical landmark and is registered with the National Park Service as a large, odd dwelling with an unknown number of rooms. Most would say that such a place must still harbor at least a few ghosts who come to reside there at the invitation of Sarah Winchester. The question is though, do they really want to haunt the place? Some would say perhaps no ghosts ever walked there but the Winchester Mansion is nothing more than the product of an eccentric woman who had too much time and money on her hands. There is no question that we can regard the place as one of the world's largest haunted houses based on nothing more than the legend of the place alone. Is this a case of where we need to draw the line between what is a real haunted spot and what is really a ghost story? Is the Winchester Mansion really haunted? I guess you'll just have to decide that for yourself. Although some people, like me, have already made up their minds. There have been a number of strange events reported at the Winchester House for many years and they continue to be reported today. Dozens of psychics have visited the house over the years and most have come away convinced or claim to be convinced that spirits still wander the place. In addition to the ghost of Sarah Winchester, there have been also many other sightings throughout the years. In the years that the house has been open to the public, employees and visitors alike have had unusual encounters there. There have been footsteps, banging doors, mysterious voices, windows that bang so hard that they shatter, cold spots, strange moving lights, doorknobs that turn by themselves, and don't forget the scores of psychics who've had their own claims of phenomenon to report. Obviously, these are all the standard reports of a haunted house, but are the stories merely wishful thinking? Are these reports of ghosts and spirits a way to continue the tradition of 
Sarah Winchester's bizarre legacy? Or could you be convinced that these stories are true? Was the house really built as a monument to the dead? Do phantoms still lurk in the maze-like corridors of the Winchester Mystery House? Like I said in the beginning, I'm forever skeptical, but I will admit if I ever have the opportunity to visit the Winchester Mystery House, I will admit I will be a little bit spooked by the legend of the place. Whatever the case, I'm certain you'd be hard-pressed to find another piece of architecture like the Winchester Mansion. Thank you so much for joining me for this mini episode of California Dreaming. I hope you've enjoyed learning a little bit about one of California's treasured historical landmarks. We will be back next week with a brand new tale for you. And until then, sweet dreams. Thank you.